Last week, we started to look at Psalm 19. We'll continue that here this morning. Psalm 19 breaks down into two or three sections, depending on whose outline you prefer. I'll come back to that at the end. But if Psalm 19 has two sections, it's really about God's two books. The book of creation, described in verses 1 to 6, and the book of scripture, uh, described in verses 7 to 14. These two books were designed to go together, to work together. Each book is sufficient for its purpose. Each book is clear for its purpose. Each book reveals the same God. No one can claim ignorance because everyone has been exposed to God through the things he has made. And of course, most people have been exposed to the things that God has said in his word as well. God is never silent. God is always there, always speaking to us. So you have these two books, creation and scripture. Creational revelation, as we saw last week, is really a a system. It's a system of symbols as God reveals himself through the things he has made. But biblical revelation is a system too. It's a system given to us in the form of a story. Because that's what the Bible is from beginning to end. One big story from creation to consummation. But again, really these two books, the book of creation and the book of scripture, form one overarching system of revelation. They are designed to work together. They belong together. We cannot separate them. So the first six verses of Psalm 19 describe how the heavens declare God's glory. And of course, not just the heavens. All that God made reveals his glory in one way or another. God has invested every aspect of his creation with purpose and meaning. It's all designed to be revelatory, every fact in the cosmos. It's not as if God created the world and then started looking around wondering, hmm, I wonder if I've made anything that I can use to teach man about myself. No, that's not the case at all. The meaning was always already there. From the very beginning, God invested creation with meaning, with purpose, with significance, with revelatory value. So we can consider the creation as a web or network of images and patterns and pictures and symbols and analogies and metaphors for divine truth. Truth, again, that was built into the nature of things in the very beginning. And that's really David's point in the first part of the psalm. Creation is full of wonders. It's full of beauty that resonates deeply within us. And all of it is designed to point us inescapably to the true and living God. Indeed, all of it is designed to point us inescapably to the Lord Jesus Christ. The things God has revealed about himself in the created order show us we owe him worship. We owe him glory. We owe him trust and obedience. Nature shows us this. But the glories of revelation in the created order, as glorious as that is, as glorious as the revelation of God is in the created order, there is an even greater revelation of God, an even more glorious revelation of God in the Scripture. David turns his attention to the Bible in verse 7. And while David seems to be mostly concerned with the effects that the Bible has on our lives, it's also quite obvious what David believes the Bible to be. Uh, Several lines in this psalm follow the same pattern. He says what Scripture is, some aspect of what Scripture is, and then some aspect of what it does in our lives. So what Scripture is followed by what it does. 
what Scripture is objectively, and then the effect that it has in the life of the believer. For David, it's very clear. God has spoken, and Scripture is a record of what he has to say. Or to be even more accurate, God is speaking actively through Scripture as his inspired and inerrant word. It's not just that God spoke, and we have a record of it, but God is actively speaking through the Scripture. The Bible is the living and active word of God. He's speaking to us every time it's read, every time we hear it. God is speaking to us through his word. So we can say this, what Scripture says, God says. The Bible is the very living word of God. God is a communicating God. He's a revealing God. He's a speaking God. And the Bible is his ultimate communication to us. And so scripture, as the very word of God, reflects all of God's attributes. Scripture carries with it God's own authority. If you think about this, anytime you have somebody with authority who speaks, say a parent or a judge, the word of that person with authority, their word carries their authority. That's how authority is expressed. You cannot express authority apart from speech. Scripture carries with it God's own authority. And because Scripture is the very word of God, it is perfect in every way, just as God is perfect. Just like the God who wrote it, so Scripture shares in all these perfections. Scripture is full of truth and wisdom and power. Scripture is inspired by God. That's how Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says all Scripture has been breathed out by God. All Scripture is inspired by God. And therefore, Scripture is infallible and inerrant. But it's interesting, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells us that the that Scripture is the very inspired Word of God, but he doesn't go on to develop any elaborate theories about what uh, what it means for the Bible to be inspired or how the Bible was inspired. Certainly there are a lot of things we can say about that, but that doesn't seem to be Paul's main interest to, to talk about some theory of, of how the Bible came to be inspired. Instead, he launches into a description of how the Bible is to be used. How the Bible is to be used by the man of God, especially the pastor, in the lives of the people of God. That seems to be his main interest. Because the Bible is the very word of God, because it is God's inspired word, therefore, Paul says, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be mature, equipped for every good work. See, he moves from Scripture being inspired to the way Scripture equips us. And it's really interesting because I think David does the same thing in Psalm 19. Certainly he affirms the Bible here is the perfect word of God, and he gives several descriptions of the Bible. But each time he goes right into how the word of God functions, how the word of God functions in the life of the believer. David is not just celebrating what God's word is, but what it does. He describes what God's word is, but he immediately moves into what the word of God does. See, it's not merely possessing the word of God that matters. No, it's how God works through his word in our lives that counts. Having the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God sitting on your shelf collecting dust does no good. The things the Bible says have to have an effect in our lives. That's what matters. Having the Word of God does us no good unless we use it the way it is supposed to be used. And David shows us how to use the Bible. He shows us the effect 
the Bible should have in our lives. And remember, David says all of this even though he did not have the completed Bible. He didn't even have the whole Old Testament. He just had the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and perhaps a few other historical books. The Bible, of course, was continuing to be written in his day. Of course, he contributed to that. But he didn't have all of it. He didn't even have the whole Old Testament. How much more are these things true now that we have the completed canon of Scripture? If David was so impressed with the Torah, the books of Moses, what would he have said about Isaiah or about John's gospel or about Paul's letter to the Romans or about Revelation? It's really interesting, too. The longest psalm in the book of Psalms is Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is essentially a song of praise to the Word of God. It's the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, longest chapter in the Bible, and in Psalm 119, David is celebrating God's law. The whole psalm, all 176 verses of it, celebrate the perfections and the functions of Scripture. Think of of these verses in Psalm 19 as a condensed summary of Psalm 119. Really, the second half of Psalm 19 is a summation of Psalm 119. David takes all 176 verses of Psalm 119 and he packs all of that truth into about seven verses in Psalm 19. That's another way to think about what's going on in the second part of this psalm. It's Dave's, David's hymn of praise to the Word of God. He could say much more, and he does in Psalm 119, but this is an excellent summary. So what do we find in the second half of Psalm 19? When David turns his attention from creation to Scripture, from natural revelation to verbal revelation, what does he say about it? What is Scripture, and what does it do for That's what David's going to show us here in the second half of this psalm. So pick up in verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul or converting the soul. David says the law of the Lord is perfect. God is perfect again, so his word is perfect. And law here is not just a reference to God's commandments, though it includes his commandments. Law here describes the whole of God's instruction, including promises and stories and warnings and exhortations. So it includes history as well as the commandments that God has given. It includes many different facets of God's revelation. The word here actually is Torah. The Torah is perfect. It could be a reference to the the books of Moses, but it also could be a reference to the whole of God's revelation. And that word Torah really means something like fatherly instruction. There's a very real sense in which the whole Bible, now that we have the completed canon, we can say the whole Bible really is Torah for us. It is fatherly instruction. And so you would expect it to have fatherly effects, and indeed it does. David says the Torah, as the perfect word of God, the Torah revives us. It gives us life. It converts us. Our Father, through his word, gives us life. God uses his word to raise the dead. Spiritually dead people are brought to life as God acts through his word. Through his word, he breathes the breath of life into us. This is something you find again and again in scripture. So, for example, the apostle Peter says in the New Testament, we were born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God is that fatherly seed planted in us that brings us to life, that brings us new life, that gives us a new birth. A birth into a a new kind of life, into a new world. 
There is power in Scripture that goes far beyond anything in creational revelation. Yes, natural revelation, creational revelation is glorious, but there is a power in the Word of God in Scripture that goes beyond creational revelation. It is the power to bring sinners to life, to revive their dead souls, to heal their damaged souls. The power of God's Word is there to convert and to vivify. David goes on, still in verse 7, he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So again, here you see David using the same pattern. It's the same pattern he uses again and again in line after line. He tells us what Scripture is and then what it does. He tells us some perfection of Scripture, and then he talks about its effect in our lives. So the Bible's perfect. It revives us. It's sure testimony. It makes us wise. Here, David calls the Word of God testimony. Now, the Ten Commandments are referred to as God's testimony. The Ark of the Covenant is referred to as God's testimony. That's a word that's used a lot of different times in Scripture with reference to God's revelation or to God's Word. The word testimony really indicates that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy. It's really a legal term. Think about testimony given in a court of law. It means the Word of God can withstand scrutiny. It means the Word of God is inerringly and infallibly correct in all that it teaches. It is true in everything it claims. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. It's sure. It's certain. It's always rock solid in everything it teaches. There is a, a, a surety, a certainty that comes with the Word of God. It's a firm place to plant your feet. You can stand on the Word of God and know that you have firm footing. It's sure. This testimony is sure. Therefore, David says, Scripture is a source of wisdom. You can be simple-minded, a simple-minded person, and Scripture can lead you into wisdom and into maturity. I think it's really interesting to consider wisdom uh, in light of Psalm 19 as a whole and how wisdom relates to both creational and biblical revelation. Certainly we can derive wisdom from the created order, from making observations about general revelation, about creational revelation, if we look at it rightly. I'll come to that in just a minute. But it's interesting too, if you read the so-called wisdom literature in the Bible, like say Proverbs, a lot of the wisdom literature in the Bible is based on making observations and generalizations about the natural world. See, even in Scripture we find wisdom that is rooted in creational revelation. But the Bible also gives us a wisdom that cannot be gleaned from nature, a wisdom that goes beyond anything that will be found in the natural world. But it's important to see wisdom as a category. Wisdom as a category ties together creational revelation and scriptural revelation. So much so that you really cannot attain to true wisdom without reading both of God's books, the book of nature and the book of scripture, together. This is how Charles Spurgeon put it. Just great, pithy way to summarize this. He says, he is wisest, so you want wisdom, this is how you get it. He is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. When the world book and the word book come together, nature and scripture, that's where you really begin <clears throat> to attain wisdom. But here's one of the keys. Here's one of the key things I think you need to understand when it comes to wisdom. 
when we go to interpret the natural world, we say, okay, God can reveal wisdom through the created order. When we go to interpret nature, when we go to interpret creation around us, we always need the testimony of Scripture as our guide. That is how the simple becomes wise, as he learns to look at the world around him in light of God's revealed word in Scripture. Because Scripture is a greater revelation of God, and so it gives us the lenses, to use John Calvin's uh, metaphor, it gives us the lenses through which we need to look at creation. Think about the rainbow. You could consider the rainbow to be a glorious sign of God's wisdom and, and, and marvel at God's handiwork when you see a rainbow. But it's through Scripture that we come to know that the rainbow is a sign of God's promise, his commitment to the creation to never again destroy the whole creation, indeed to redeem the creation. Is the, is the rainbow part of natural revelation or special revelation? Well, with wisdom, you can see, yes, there are certain things that... Uh, that the rainbow tells us about the nature of God, certainly. But when we bring Scripture to the picture, we get a much fuller understanding of what the rainbow is, what it means, what it communicates. That this is God's war bow, unstrung and hung in the sky because God's not going to make war on his creation ever again in the same way as he did in the days of Noah. That's one of the ways Scripture makes us wise. Scripture can take the simple man and make him into a wise <coughs> man by giving him this framework for interpreting creation and history. But there are other ways Scripture makes the simple wise. There are some things that Scripture spells out clearly for us, obviously, moral commands like do not steal. But you know, it's interesting. A lot of times in life we are faced with decisions which are not really moral decisions in a direct way. And there's no clear-cut command in Scripture to tell us what to do. Particular decisions you have to make specific to your life, like which job to take, or who to marry, or which apartment to rent, or which car to buy. In these kinds of situations, we need wisdom. Wisdom is able to grasp God's will in areas where there is no explicit word in Scripture. But this is the thing. Scripture makes the simple wise so that that simple person can make a wise decision even about something the Bible does not directly address. Well, how does Scripture do that? Well, again, Scripture does not give us a direct answer to every question in life. It doesn't tell us what decision to make every time we're confronted with a fork in the road. But Scripture does give us principles, guidelines, frameworks, and a set of priorities that lead us to wisdom so we can make a good decision, even if something the Bible does not explicitly address. Cornelius Van Til said the Bible is authoritative on everything of which it speaks, and it speaks to everything. That's true. Now, obviously, Van Til didn't mean that it speaks to everything directly. The Bible doesn't speak about cars and computers directly. But the Bible does give us a way of looking at all of life and all of creation and all of history. It gives us a big picture view of the world. And it gives us certain principles and frameworks and guidelines that help us to act with wisdom in those areas of life where the right decision is not directly spelled out in Scripture. So even when Scripture doesn't give us the direct answer, it still makes us wise in those particular areas of life when we face those particular kinds of decisions. It makes the simple wise. It brings the immature to maturity. Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
So here the statutes, his, his precepts, his commands, his principles, his statutes are right. And what effect does that have? That effect brings joy in our hearts. God's commands are right because they reflect his own character, not because there's some, some standard outside of God that his commands conform to. No, God's commands are right because his commands reflect his own character, his own perfect attributes. And his commands are right because they fit perfectly with how he has designed us to live. And so all right-hearted people will rejoice in his commands, in his statutes. We don't rejoice in these statutes uh, because, uh, because we've figured them out for ourselves. We rejoice in them because we receive them as the very word of God. It's really interesting to me. God's commands reveal the truth about God. God's commands reveal the truth about ourselves. God's commands reveal the truth about our world. And therefore we can say nothing is more practical or workable than God's commands. There are some people who want to be pragmatists. They just want to do what works. Okay, well the thing is, nothing is going to work better than obeying God's statutes. These statutes show us the right way to live. We're to rejoice in these statutes. You know, nobody that, that I know of looks at a law they pass down in Montgomery or a law they pass up in D.C. and rejoices in those laws and describes those laws as beautiful. Okay, we just don't really do that. And a lot of times that's because their laws are terrible. They're, they're not good laws. But we don't think of their laws that way. God's laws, God's statutes bring joy to those who embrace them. Because this is the right way to live. People do foolish things because they think they know best. People do foolish things because they hold false beliefs about how things are, about how reality works, about what reality is really like. People hold false beliefs and therefore they do foolish things. The Word of God rescues us from all of that. The way to live a joyful life, a happy life, a fulfilled life is to embrace God's Commands. In Psalm 119, verse 45, David says, I walk about in freedom because I've kept your precepts. Your laws mark out the way of freedom. We think law and freedom are opposed. David says, no, in keeping your law, I find true freedom. Just like a fish swimming in the water, that, that fish is not free to live outside the water. You throw that fish outside the water, it's going to die. So it is with God's law. God's law is like water to the fish. It should be the very air we breathe. It should be the water we swim in like a fish. It's what we were made for. It's how we were designed to live. God's commands do indeed describe the best way to live. Anything else, any other way of life will result in misery and catastrophe. One of the pagans said of the early Christians, looking at how they live so different and how they handled their money, and how they lived in their marriages, and everything that they did. And he said, they alone know the right way to live. You can see it. And it's true. See, it's better to submit humbly to God's commands and find joy in keeping them than to rebel and find out the hard way that, oh, actually God was right. He knew what he was talking about. David found the yoke of God's law to be light, not a burden. He found freedom in the keeping of God's law. He found joy in the keeping of God's law. Next line in the psalm. 
the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This really carries forward the same thought we've just been developing. God's law is holy. God's law brings light. God's law brings enlightenment. The way David describes this in Psalm 119, he says God's law is a lamp to our path and a light to our feet. If we refuse to see life in light of God's word, we will be in the dark. God's word is like a flashlight that shows us the way in a sin-darkened world. God's word brings true enlightenment. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in the Christian faith the same way I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Lewis is saying it's not just that I can look at the light of the sun, but I look at everything else in the light the sun supplies. And that's the whole point. David is saying here, the, the word of God provides enlightenment. We're to look at everything in the light that God's word supplies. This is to be the sun. We, we, we've already seen in, earlier in Psalm 19 how David talked about the sun in the sky as a symbol of Jesus. Well, how does Jesus shine his light into the world? Through his word. Is, is, is the chief way. This is how the light of Christ shines into our world. There is an enlightening function that God's word plays in our lives. It shines the light of truth on all of reality. See, the Bible tells us the true story of the world. The Bible gives us a public history of the whole cosmos from creation to consummation. And that public history is the true story of the world. Understanding that brings enlightenment. Philosophically, we could say the Bible provides the only stable foundation for science. For science, you have to have certain preconditions, certain presuppositions. The Bible provides those preconditions, those presuppositions for a successful and effective empirical investigation into the world around us. The Bible explains suffering and love and family and friendship and beauty. Not exhaustively, perhaps. There's still mystery about many of these things. But the Bible explains these realities to us. The Bible is the key and the clue to everything. It enlightens our eyes so we can see the world as it really is. Verse 9, David goes on. He says, the fear of the Lord is clear, enduring, it's clean, enduring forever. Now this one seems to break the pattern a little bit because what you've had so far is a description of the word followed by its effect. Here he says the fear of the Lord is clean. <clears throat> Why does he say the fear of the Lord? Well actually I think the fear of the Lord is a kind of stand-in for God's word here. I think he's still talking about God's word. Those who fear God will listen to and submit to God's voice speaking in scripture. One way of defining what it means to fear God is to is to say this, to fear God is to take him at his word. It is to tremble before his word. It is to obey his word. Uh, Solomon says at the end of Ecclesiastes 12, this is the, the sum of the whole matter, what life is all about, to fear God and keep his commandments. Fearing God is seen in hearkening to his voice in Scripture. Now I say this, you know, we live in a, in, a, in a time, in a place, in a culture where the Bible gets mocked a lot. And people like to take especially embarrassing, what they think are embarrassing parts of the Bible, and trot them out and laugh at them and use them to, to poke fun at Christians. Look, the reality is one reason today that people do not take the Bible seriously is because they do not fear God. That's a sign that people do not fear God. People laugh at the Bible because there's no fear of God before their eyes. Your view of this book 
is really what reveals whether or not you fear God. Your view of this book is what determines whether or not you fear God. It really reveals. I, I can tell you everything you believe about God by asking what you believe about the Bible. And I'll know whether or not you take God seriously for who God is as an authority in your life by what you tell me about the Bible. See, I think when David here speaks of the fear of the Lord, that's just a way of speaking of Scripture. Scripture is given to us that we might fear God. David tells us that fearing God, that is humbling ourselves before his word, cleanses us forever. See, when we fear God and and tremble before his word and humbly submit ourselves to his word, what do we find? There is forgiveness and transformation in God's word. And and then you come to the next line in verse 9, which further elaborates this thought. The judgments of the Lord, so obviously his judgments here revealed in Scripture, the judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. The judgments of God are true and they are righteous. Again, not because God conforms to some standard outside of himself, but because his judgments in Scripture express his own truthfulness and his own righteousness. Now here's the thing, and this is why this is so important. Going back to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, when our first parents fell into sin, man wants to set himself up as the judge. Man wants to make himself the judge of God and the judge of God's word. He wants to weigh God's word in the balance as if he were the ultimate standard. And that's really at the heart of all sin. It's this commitment to autonomy. I will rule myself. I will decide for myself. I will judge myself. I know good from evil. I will be the one to set myself up as the standard. Man makes himself the measure of all things. That is the heart of sin. Man makes himself wise in his own eyes. He makes himself the judge. And here David says, no. God and his word are always the standard of judgment. Man can make himself the judge, but his judgments aren't true and altogether righteous. God's word must always be the standard of judgment. And this is because, again, Scripture has a unique authority. Obviously, there are many real authorities in life. Parents and police and pastors all have authority. There are many authorities we all have to reckon with in life. But all of these human authorities, their authority is limited and fallible. There is always a higher court of appeal. Not so with Scripture. Scripture is the final court of appeal. Scripture is the final judge. Scripture is the highest court there is. Scripture is utterly unique among all other authorities. Scripture is utterly unique in that it has absolute and infallible authority. Scripture alone has absolute and infallible authority. That's really what the Reformers meant by sola scriptura. Not that the Bible is the only authority, but it's the only absolute authority and the only infallible authority. See, if I say Scripture is absolute and infallible, that's not a claim you can make about any earthly ruler or any earthly authority and their word. That applies only to Scripture. It's true of God alone. God and His word alone. Whenever people start making moral judgments that we know, according to Scripture, are flawed, so when they call good evil and evil good, we should be asking, by what standard? By what standard are you making that judgment? What authority is being absolutized and treated as infallible when you make that judgment? A lot of people today are really smug about their 
progressive views on things like abortion or sexuality. And we should ask, by what standard? By what standard do you hold these to be the right judgments? And if you really press them on this, you will find there is no standard. There is no firm basis for those progressive moral judgments. It's just a feeling. Feelings have been made the authority. Or it's just a preference. There's nothing more to it. And that's because if there is no God, if there is no God who has spoken with absolute and infallible authority in his word, then there is no right and wrong. I mean, at best, it's might makes right. And this is why the judgments and evaluations that God gives us, the, the judgments and evaluations and definitions that God gives us in Scripture, the judgments that God gives us about right and wrong in Scripture are so important. Because at the end of the day, you really only have two choices. It's either God's word or chaos. It's God's judgments or anything goes. It's Scripture or the swirl. That's it. There's really no other option. Those are your worldview choices. And that's why I think we Christians should step out into the public square. We should step out into these debates in the culture with such confidence. We should step out into these debates in the public square, Bible in hand, ready to speak with the authority of God's word to the issues of the day. See, God's judgments make sense. There is a beauty and an order and a logic to the moral system God has given to us. His judgments are right and true. They're absolute and infallible. What more could you need? What other moral system would you want to go to? Where are you going to find a lawgiver better than this? Back in Deuteronomy 4, it says that, that if Israel had kept the, the law of God, this would have happened. The nations would have looked at Israel and marveled. What other nation has a God who is a lawgiver as wise as this? There's no better moral system you're going to find out there. Scripture alone is absolute and infallible in its authority. Well, then in verses 10 and 11, David begins to summarize what is so gloriously unique about Scripture. He compares it to gold and honey, and he shows us that Scripture is better than money. Scripture is better than honey. Gold and honey here really represent the, the, the sum of God's greatest creational gifts. Gold, you could say, symbolizes and reveals God's glory and splendor in a created way. It's a created symbol of these things. Of course, it's also a sign of wealth and prosperity and the good life. Honey symbolizes and reveals God's sweetness and goodness. It's also symbolic of all the pleasures that God built into his world. So gold and honey are good things. It's good to have them. Yet David says, Scripture is superior to both. Scripture gives us a revelation of God's glory greater than gold and a revelation of God's goodness greater than honey. Scripture reveals God's glory and God's goodness in a way that excels any aspect of creational revelation. And so it is better to have the Bible than a pile of gold or a big bank account. It's better to have the Bible than any of the pleasures this created world can offer. We get more of God in Scripture than anywhere else. I tell you, that's one reason among many why it's so important to gather in a worship service like this with preaching every Lord's Day. Instead of saying, well, I'm just going to worship God on the golf course today. Hey, nature reveals God too. I'll worship God there. I'll commune with God, do the things He's made out on the golf course. No, no. 
This is where God's word is proclaimed. This is where God's word is found. And God's word in scripture is better than what God has revealed about himself on the golf course. And that's why you need to be here to hear the word of God proclaimed. See, scripture is superior. Scripture gives us this glorious revelation of God that goes beyond what is found anywhere else. And then verse 11, by then, that is by the judgments of God found in his word, by then your servant is warned. Scripture is full of warnings designed to keep us walking in the path of life, the path of obedience. Do not ignore or downplay the warnings of Scripture. As I read this morning in our opening exhortation from the Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the things faith does in encountering warnings in the Word of God, faith trembles before those warnings. Because faith knows, but for the grace of God, I would fail in this way. I would fall away. I would do what's being warned against. But for the grace of God. But it's also important to remember the flip side of these warnings, and that is the promise of reward. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter on faith, also tells us to embrace the promises. So we embrace the promise of reward. Certainly there are rewards for keeping God's commands, but David says here there is reward in keeping God's commands. And I think that's an important distinction. It's as if David is saying obedience to God's commands brings its own reward. There is a reward in keeping his commands. Because when you fulfill God's commands, you can live with peace of mind, knowing you've done the right thing. You can live with a clear conscience, and that's a wonderful thing. But even more than that, the reward that is found in keeping God's word is communion with God himself. Obeying God brings you closer to God himself. In John 14, we read as our gospel lesson, this morning, Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Obedience leads to a greater and deeper communion with God. When you obey, what you're doing is really tidying up the house of your heart so God can make himself even more and more at home in your heart. And so as you obey God, you experience ever-deepening communion with the triune God, and that is a reward in itself. Indeed, that is the best reward there is. The final three verses of this psalm are considered by some to be a third book to go with the two books already mentioned. And if you read the psalm that way, it's about the book of nature, the book of scripture, and the book of the heart. Or as others have put it, it's about God's revelation in the sky, in the scripture, and in the secrets of the heart. Or you could say the three books are creation, Bible, and conscience. Others see these final verses not as a third section, uh, not as a new section at all, but rather as a continuation of David's description of how Scripture works in our lives. Either way, whatever you say about the structure of this psalm, these last verses are incredibly helpful because they show us how God deals with our hearts. These final verses are intensely practical. See, God reveals himself to us, and as he does so, he convicts us of our sin. It's as if God is the straight edge who shows us how crooked we are. And so God's righteousness exposes our unrighteousness. And so David here acknowledges his sin, even sins that are hidden from him, even sins he's not fully aware of. Who can understand his errors, David asks. And then he asks for forgiveness, even for these sins he's not aware of 
committing, but he also asked that God would keep him from high-handed and presumptuous sins, sins that would get dominion over him and enslave him. Instead, he asks that God would keep him blameless and innocent of great transgression. And so what is David driving at here? What does David want? David wants forgiveness and holiness, and that should be the double desire of every Christian. Forgiveness of sin and deliverance from sin. Forgiveness and holiness. That is the double desire of every Christian. And that's what David describes here. And then finally, David closes in verse 14 with a prayer that really sums everything up and ties everything together. David says, now praying to God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. The meditations of his heart. He's talking about the inflow, the things his mind and heart take in and give attention to, what he thinks about, what his attention is focused on. And then the words of his mouth, that's the outflow, the speech that flows out of the heart. So he wants the inflow and the outflow to be controlled by God's word, to be pleasing to God. The things he takes in and the things he puts out. He wants all this to be acceptable to God. And then he closes the prayer in the name of the Lord, my rock and redeemer. God is a rock. It's interesting here at the end, he he comes back and he points us to uh, a feature of natural revelation, creational revelation. Rocks reveal God. God is stable and solid and unchanging. You can build your life on him. That's an image from natural revelation that shows us truth about God and then God as redeemer. The word here is goel. It describes the kinsman redeemer. It's an institution set up in biblical law. So he combines images from nature and from scripture right here at the end of the psalm to tell us who God is. When he speaks of God as goel, this is an appeal to scripture and it is an amazing Because according to the law, a kinsman redeemer is a close relative who would come to your rescue, who would protect you, who would set you free from slavery, who would cancel your debts, who would secure your inheritance, who would defeat your enemies. Think of Boaz in the book of Ruth. He's called a goel to give you some idea. David says the Lord will be his kinsman redeemer. So this can be nothing other than a prophecy of the coming incarnation and the crucifixion. The Lord will become man. The Lord will become a member of the human family. The Lord will become a member of David's family. The Lord will become David's kinsman in order to redeem him. This is amazing. The one who is our rock and our redeemer is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom all revelation in creation and scripture points. He is the son journeying across the sky, filling the world with light. He is the Word incarnate, the law of God made flesh in perfection. He is the rock on whom we stand and build, and He is the Redeemer who rescues us from our enemies and frees us from sin. That's what this psalm is about, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.